Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. This is Toby Miller and my guest today is... Victor Picard. Victor, welcome. Tell me what you're up to. Tell me what you're thinking about. Tell me what's happening for you. Thanks, Toby, and thanks for having me on your show. This is this. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, so much is on my mind uh, these days. So many <laughs> crises yeah. um, keeping me up late at night, um, especially having children and, and uh, thinking about the future of the world. But to be a little more specific and and a, le- a little less um, doom and gloom, although it is fairly pessimistic, I'm very focused on the questions around the future of journalism. I've been obsessed with this area of interest for well over a decade now. And uh, as much as that future does not look uh, very bright, I think that there are little glimmers of hope uh, in that you can see in the wreckage here and there. So that's something that I'm focusing on, both the critique of our media system, but also uh, opportunities for creating entirely new models. So that's that's uh, in a very broad sense what I'm what I'm thinking about these days. Yes. When you say, Victor, that a lot, you know, you've been thinking about this for over a decade. What are the big things that have changed over that decade, do you think? Sure. So I guess speaking from the vantage point of a, a media reform activist, which is how I, I would, at least one of the hats that, that I wear, um, I would say going back to the early 2000s. So I guess we're saying even more, maybe we're talking about two decades here. Um, I think the focus at that point, again, from a media reform perspective, was that one of the core roots of the problems facing our, our media system and impeding any sort of democratic potential for our, our news and information systems was concentration of media ownership. Um, and Toby, I think you would recall, I believe you were in the States back in those days, but especially in the run-up to the Iraq war um, and the many failures, the many blatant failures of the press to critically cover the elite rationales for why that war was was necessary, why we needed to invade Iraq. It really brought into focus the corporate nature of our of our news and information systems and the fact that much of these news media sectors were dominated by a handful of corporations, a handful of oligarchs. Um, and I think this really galvanized people to focus on that as the core root of the problem. I think since that point, at least in my own mind, our analysis has developed, evolved as much as that is still a problem. And of course, we have so many contemporary data points that we can uh, marshal for our arguments that oligarchs command far too much of our news and information systems, whether we're talking about Elon Musk or Zuckerberg or Rupert Murdoch. There, you know, there's there's certainly a gallery of and his awful children. Don't forget and his, his terrible children. children. <laughs> it only gets worse. Uh, so yeah, so it's not it's not as if uh, that's not still a problem. It certainly is. Um, but I guess in my in my own work, and I, I, here I'm not speaking for media reform uh, activists uh, writ large, but I, at least the way I'm looking at this, I think increasingly we have to recognize that many of the problems we're dealing with are symptomatic of these deeper structural pathologies, but those pathologies aren't just monopoly problems. They're also capitalism 
problems. And so I increasingly, I think that we need to center our critiques of capitalism, whether we're talking about the loss of local journalism or irresponsible media coverage or, you know, what terrible things that the, you know, the villain of the day is doing. Um, I think we, we certainly need to talk more about capitalism and more importantly, creating alternative media models, non-capitalist media models um, that can better actualize our, our democratic needs. So that's, that's uh, in a, a very long-winded way of, of saying that I think, again, at least for me personally, this is how the critique has changed. I think, you know, we could speak more broadly about uh, media reform activism, which tends to be sometimes necessarily, but tends to be reactive uh, to many of the problems that, that are, that are you know, emerging um, in our contemporary times. And again, there are so many, uh, it's hard to keep track of them all and, and it's difficult to respond accordingly. But I think it is also important to keep this bigger picture in mind as we're trying to think through and, and develop alternatives to the failing capitalist system. Understood. I guess what you're describing from two decades ago is what could be, in fact, a neoclassical economic critique of the media, which is that it's too difficult to have new entrants there isn't enough competition. There are monopolies or at least oligopolies in operation, right? Whereas right. what you're suggesting, I think, in the period since is that there's a divergence from what might be common ground between progressives and quite conventional bourgeois economists towards what is a fuller-throated critique of capitalism. Is that right? Yes, I think that's spot on. Uh, I mean, just to add a, a, a tiny bit of nuance to it in that I don't think it's necessarily uh, an either or. And here again, I'm, I'll use myself as an example where I, for many years, I've been trying to bridge that neoclassical critique. And I, I it, as I was doing this, I never thought that I was, I was, um, you know, fully emerged in that or, or immersed in that tradition, but rather this is the language. These are the tools that we can pull from that tradition to try to push liberal policymakers in a, in a more uh, radical direction. So, for example, I often invoke things like market failure and public goods. And, you know, these are concepts that come out of neoclassical economics, but they're normally, you know, in a, in a standard textbook, you might have one small paragraph about market failures. They almost never happen. When they do, it just takes a few tweaks. And, um, and then we're back to uh, the, the, the market working uh, harmoniously. So uh, what, what I've been trying to say is that there's what I call systemic market failure, so that there's always market failure, in, especially in, in commercial media systems, and that that requires constant state intervention. So very quickly, we move out of a neoclassical paradigm into something more, more radical, more Marxist. Um, and, uh, you know, that I've been trying to bridge those two traditions for, for many years now, and I'm beginning to see the, I don't want to say futility of that um, strategy, but certainly its limitations. I wondered if I could jump back to your opening point, Victor, which was very helpful in talking about some of these changes. Is there something apart from capitalism that links the, the horrors of the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq with the horrors of numerous conflicts Today, people thinking a lot about Gaza, but there's also Mali, South Sudan, Yemen, and so on. And that is ideology. 
that in fact so-called social media doesn't really display much greater ideological variety than does Fox News versus ABC. Yes, absolutely. Um, again, I mean, I think in some ways we're talking about capitalist ideology, um, certainly in understanding many of the daily operations. I mean, to, to use a maybe even more um, clear example, you know, oftentimes when we're talking about cable television news in the United States, people, the lazy narrative is that, well, you have Fox on the right and MSNBC on the left. And like, that's the range <laughs> of debate. And uh, yes, it, it should. We should laugh when we hear that. Unfortunately, we don't laugh enough at, at those kinds of claims and we don't interrogate them. And so what I think, you know, this the, the absurdity of that claim really brings into focus that these are both extremely commercialized news outlets. They are trying to capture attention to deliver to advertisers. They're ratings driven, which, of course, is not just a popularity contest that translates into uh, revenues. So that explains a lot of it. But I also think what your question is getting as is, is, you know, when we're talking about ideology, it's not it's not just I don't think capitalism explains all of it. And I think, you know, it's very much bound up in imperialist ideologies and racist hierarchies. And, you know, all these things are bound up. And I increasingly am turning more to to frameworks such as racial capitalism, you know, these kinds of uh, critiques that I think bring into focus how these ideologies are inextricably interlinked. And, um, you know, it's, it's useful to try to tease them apart, as I think we should do. Um, but it's not as if, you know, too often, as soon as you start critiquing capitalism, uh, again, especially in the U.S., that's it's like, oh, you can almost hear the eye rolls, like there goes another Marxist, uh, you know, and that's just sort of a conversation stopper. So, you know, I do think we need to further nuance these critiques, but at the same time, a critique of capitalism has to be central for us to, especially to make sense of our, of our what, news and information systems. What you're telling me, Victor, is that if you invited me to a cocktail party at Annenberg and I were wearing a T-shirt I have on now, can you read <laughs> it? Profits are the unmade wages of the working class. Yes, that would be a big hit. At it an would Annenberg be a, party. a lot of people would want to talk to me, wouldn't they? I think so, or, or they would want to engage. Or they certainly would draw reactions. Let's, let's would they be the way. security staff wanting me wanting to usher me out <laughs> of the building? To be fair, I do think the Overton window, as it were, I, I, I think that there, you know, the discursive environment has broadened uh, in in recent years and in in all places, not just Annenberg. Uh, I think throughout the field. And yet, I still feel like there's much more work to be done. Work to be done. So one thing that occurs to me is a very drastic shift in the United States is that the pitiful, despicable families that supposedly had the public interest in mind in running things like the Washington Post and the New York Times in all their horror have in most cases across the country, and the same applies to the big combines, if you like, like Gannett and Knight and so on of the past. The thing that's really been transformed, although not in the case of the Post and the Times themselves, is that the idea of there being a local proprietor, or at least a set of proprietors who were newspaper men and women, has been displaced by hedge funds, for whom uh, these are investments that they make in, say, buying up 
so-called local media in order to strip them of their assets and sell them, or at least sell the bits of them that are profitable. And that in, in a sense, even quite reactionary people can see that something's been lost in that movement away from a supposedly benign patriarchy model. Yes, I think that's absolutely fair to say. I, I think I think it's a very uh, astute observation. And to put it in a, a little bit more context, I think that this isn't necessarily a, a break or, or a rupture, although certainly things are, are getting worse. But what you're seeing with the so-called vulture capitalists, the Alden global capitals of the world swooping in and buying up distressed uh, newspapers, they are essentially the last capitalists who are interested at all. Uh, you know, the, the, the hedge funds, there's a couple chain newspaper companies that are still doing the same thing, essentially. But everyone sees the writing on the wall, which is clear as day that local journalism in particular is no longer a profitable enterprise. So the last thing that they're, this is sort of late stage capitalism um, in, in, in terms of, of how it's infecting local journalism. And that is exactly, as you say, stripping it for parts, literally selling things like the parking lot and the, you know, the real estate, the equipment. And then of course, downsizing and, and, and firing uh, the journalists themselves. So that's happening at a rapid pace. And there was a report that just came out in the last couple of weeks. This it's now becoming somewhat of an annual report on the news deserts problem in the United States by Penny Abernathy, who uh, has now is now telling us that since 2005, and we should also keep in mind that even at 2005, things were already pretty bad and sort of in a downturn. But since 2005, the U.S. has lost uh, two, nearly two thirds of its uh, newspaper journalists and a th nearly a third of its newspapers. And this is only going to get worse. So I think, again, what we're seeing with the, the private equity firms and hedge funds swooping in, this is a symptom of how bad things are going. It's, 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 a, it's epiphenomenal to this capitalist destruction of our entire uh, news media infrastructure in the United States, especially local news, we should be clear. That's uh, where the crisis is most profound. Now, what about people who are going to say to you or to me, Victor, none of this fucking matters because children aren't interested. Teenagers aren't interested. Students aren't interested. They don't watch television. They don't read the papers. They don't listen to the radio. They just look at influences in football, fashion and makeup. And all, you know, it's Instagram and TikTok and nothing else. And that this is fundamentally the problem. In other words, worrying about media ownership is a worry for people who are 35 and up. And it is meaningless to younger people unless they haven't yet decided to sell out and move from their journalism degree to so-called strategic communication, which is the bullshit euphemism for public relations. Right. Yes, this is certainly happening. Um, in fact, I think by latest numbers for every one uh, journalist we have in the United States, we have something like seven uh, PR employees. And earning uh, more money. Much more earning money. much more money. I mean, certainly we can't blame them given the, the precarity facing news workers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is a common reaction. And of course, it's I think it's there's some legitimacy to this. But I think we also need to to tease apart a, a couple things. So first of all, 
it's 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 a little bit unclear. It's true that young people are not getting their news from newspapers. In fact, very you know increasingly fewer of us are actually getting our news directly from newspapers. And yet, we should be clear. And I used to always preface these kinds of conversations with the with the simple point, which is that newspapers are the last bastion, especially in the United States, are the last bastion for producing original. Uh, news and information for actually doing the the act of reporting and news gathering. Um, so it's not that we have some nostalgia. Some people certainly do. I, it's not that I have nostalgia for ink stained fingers and you know rattling <laughs> through uh, broadsheets. But it's just that that is the informational feeder for our entire news media ecosystem. And this is true even for social media. I, I do think TikTok is beginning to change the picture here. So I, I don't, I, I want to hedge a little bit in how much I go with this, with this argument, but certainly most of the news and information that we glean from social media still derives from these struggling and dying uh, newspapers. So, um, so that, so people are still getting news and information. It's still coming from, from the news, from, from traditional news institutions. That doesn't mean that we need to preserve them as they are, but we need to be clear that this is still a crisis and it matters whether the uh, newspapers um, die or not. Um, now, that said, there's still other arguments we could bring in here as well, which is there's this whole and this starts getting more back to the neoclassical economics that we were talking about earlier. But there's this notion of positive externalities. Right. So it doesn't always matter if everyone is directly reading, you know, the, the new from the news source from, from the original news source or not, but it's more that this news and information is being produced. And even if I'm not consuming it directly, if my neighbor is, I'm going to benefit from that because we're creating a, a better informed society. So I, I think it's, it's worth pushing back on kind of these arguments, which themselves are somewhat of a neoclassical you know, supply and demand. If people aren't demanding the news, then therefore we should let the, the supply wither away. And I think we need to look more broadly and dip into some classical democratic theory to argue for why we still, democratic societies absolutely must have uh, local journalism. And Jim Carrey. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Jim Carrey uh, can, can, uh, can help uh, bring attention to some of this as well, but we also, you know, I'm not I'm not a uh, media effects scholar, but certainly there is a lot of research. I mean, we now have these natural experiments almost on a weekly basis, which shows what happens to a local community once it loses its local newspaper. And some of this is fairly intuitive, but now we have the empirical evidence to show that, sure enough, people are less informed about politics, less likely to vote less likely to get engaged, to run for office, for example, higher levels of corruption. So all these social harms, all these things that we learn in school about how democracy requires a free and by implication a functional press system are, are true. They're being borne out by, by the research. And regardless of how we view the traditional press, I think you know whether our concerns are about uh, the war in Gaza or the climate crisis or mass incarceration, all of these issues man really mandate the existence or, re or really you know depend on the existence of a local news and information infrastructure. Without that, we're not going to get very far on our preferred issues. What about uh, another argument that emerges with reference to the so-called social media, which is that people live in bubbles? 
that people who want to read The Nation and Counterpunch in the United States will not read, you know, National Review uh, or even The Atlantic and vice versa. And that this is somehow new and a problem. I wonder whether you have any thoughts about that, that the social media have, have produced worlds in which there is such a huge amount of information available, whatever one's ideological proclivity, that there is little incentive and even less actual practice to uh, in the direction of looking for the middle ground, for example. That's certainly true, even though there's, you know, ongoing raging debate about the existence of echo chambers and filter bubbles, these very compelling metaphors that seem to describe so much of what's happening. And yet there's a lot of research that suggests that that's not as pronounced, or at least it's, it's pronounced among a fairly small percentage of the, of the population. Nonetheless, I think both this question and your last question get at this core challenge, which is we can't simply build the media and they will come, right? We can't just make sure that there is supply of reliable news and information and that people are going to trust it and engage with it and actually pay attention to it. Um, and yet there are numerous data points to present a kind of counter narrative, which is, first of all, the polling data shows us that even among people who hate the media, when it comes to their local news media institutions, they have warm, fuzzy feelings towards those institutions. And this is true even among conservatives. In fact, conservatives and liberals really don't differ um, much. You know, and, and that is one of the reasons why I mentioned Jim Carrey, because no Marxist he, but in some ways an economic determinist, at the same time as he was a person very taken with ritual. And it seems to me that one of the things that's lost with the erosion of local journalism in the United States is that people actually knew the guys and gals on the beat in their barrio. And they could see who was making the stories. And the same with local news reporters on television or radio. And that this is a really big change, I think, really significant. However, I want to go back to my imaginary cocktail party. By now, you're feeling ambivalent about having invited me. But here comes the moment Never. when I've... When I've had my second glass of wine, but I haven't been able to get at the cheese, and I shout out across the room with the security guards trying to take my T-shirt from me because they like it so much, what does Victor want? Which is to say, A, what would you like to see happening now? But also, is there a mythic time that was wonderful? Muckraking, for example. And if it was a mythically wonderful time, wasn't it mostly but not entirely straight white men telling their stories in the United States? Absolutely. Um, and to you know, your, your question already, you know, pre, <laughs> already anticipates the answer, which is that um, it, was th this, this, th it was a mythic time in that it, it's a myth that it did not exist, uh, that this did not Actually, there was no actual golden age. Uh, I think we can simultaneously articulate that things are worse now than they were perhaps 20 years ago and are continuing to worsen. However, there was never it was never that great to begin with. Um, and here, you know, I, I think I, I probably 
um, you know, break ways with with a lot of um, critics in this space, or at least you know people who are really worried about the future of journalism. The narrative is it's often sort of declensionist narrative of, you know, we just need to get back to the way things were. We used to have, you know, they often invoke Watergate. There used to be this great investigative reporting. But the news deserts problem, to give one example, that's not a new problem. There have always been uh, news deserts, especially for communities of color who've never been well served by a commercial uh, media system. So I think it's very important. This is why the structural critique is so important. It really brings into focus that yet again, these problems are are not new. This is a continuity of structural problems that have been there since the dawn of the of the commercialized press, and um, and so I do think this begins to tee us up for imagining an alternative system, which I think does start getting at some of your other questions as well. Um, and in what I'm imagining, and this is where I start getting wildly utopian. Uh, maybe I've had several drinks of wine at this at this party at this point, and so I'm I'm speaking a bit too too loudly about my, um, you know, my 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 communist uh, plans. But I think that one of the what we first have to do is disentangle um, our news information systems from capitalism. So we need to create an entirely non-capitalist models. So that means first step is to decommercialize, and unfortunately, I th- or Unfortunately, the market's already doing that for us, right? So in some ways, this has already been set up for us. Things are getting so bad that there really is no commercial future for local journalism. So it's going to have to be a non-market-based model. So that is step one. But step two is that we need to radically democratize it. So we need to make sure that it's not those same old white guys who are you know, picking up the, the shreds and embers of the, of the old system to create a new system, which is really similar to the old system. And we are seeing a fair amount of that happening as we speak. But what I'm speaking, what I'm talking about in my most utopian plans is what I refer to as public media centers, PMCs. And this is loosely inspired by the independent media center movement of the late 90s, early 2000s, except that was primarily an anarchic model. It's based on volunteerist labor. Um, It had a number of problems. I I studied it very deeply uh, back in the day. But it also had a lot of promise. However, if we were to socialize that system, so so these independent media centers were emerging. They were sort of community journalism projects that popped up usually in the midst of the global justice movement. Uh, Wherever there was a major protest, you saw an independent media center pop up. It would cover protest politics. It would cover various leftist issues. But many of these began to wither for lack of institutional financial support. They were also um, eclipsed by the rise of the blogosphere and other technological changes. But I think we could go back to that that impulse and make sure that it is federally guaranteed so that we have public support for those centers in every community across the country. So federally guaranteed, but locally owned and controlled. And it, this would get at that Jim Carrey provocation, which is it isn't just about information. It's not just about making sure local communities are informed, as important as that is, especially around things like vaccines and where to vote and these kind of community information needs that that we all have. But it goes beyond that to build solidarity, to build community, that the, the journalists would be members of the communities themselves. So I think that starts getting at this cultural aspect as well that's so important. It's often somewhat implied in these conversations, but very rarely addressed. And so my PMC model 
um, which will be uh, implemented in, you know, maybe 30 years or so. Um, that's, that's where I think that's what I want. And you can tell I've had too many glasses of wine and, and going on very long winded about this, but no, something. I should tell people it's 10 a.m. where you are. So <laughs> imagine it's the caffeine. Time. It's the caffeine. I talking. don't know what's in that red cup that you're drinking from, Victor. No, that, that's <laughs> great. Thank you. That's very helpful. And I think it, it reminds me, too, of the way in which in Western Europe and in the United States in the 19th century, what slowly happened in some cases and quite quickly in others is that religion which had been often the place where sacerdotes would be talking about housing prices and infrastructure and politics, got shifted into talking more about morality and hermeneutic interpretation of so-called good books because local newspapers started talking about real estate and infrastructure and politics in ways that were much more informed and much more helpful. And that historic encounter is something that in the United States, not in many other countries, really needs to happen again and very much with the same kind of reversal so that God-botherers move away from telling secular people whose numbers are increasing all the time in the United States how to behave and making that such a big part of, uh, in many cases, their spiel. Anyway, that's that's to one side. But there is a dynamic relationship in local life in the United States between religion and the press, and it's reversed from what it became 200 years ago and 150 years ago and needs to reverse again. Uh, now, enough of my ranting. I want to... I want to let people know a little bit about your own trajectory. You've mentioned it in terms of activism and how the world of the United States has changed a bit during that time. And so has your analysis, very Keynesian, of course, when the facts change, so does the analysis. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your publishing life, because it's significant and distinguished, and it'd be nice for people to know how they can find it and what trends you've followed or started or theorized across that body of work? Sure. I'll try not to be quite as long-winded uh, as, as I was in my previous answers. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, just to summarize very quickly what could be a much longer conversation, I started out, as you know, as an activist, as a media activist, um, and I went into the academy wanting to to change things um that was that was my uh primary uh driving motivation and so i initially studied as i mentioned earlier the indie media movement that was the subject of my master's thesis and the first few uh academic journal articles that i published um and from there especially once i moved to the university of illinois and started working more with historians and political economists i began focusing more on the history of especially American media, really getting the sense that the U.S. system is somewhat of an outlier on, according to numerous measures. And I wanted to find out, you know, how did we come to inherit such a extremely commercialized media system here in the United States, one that's very lightly regulated and, yes, dominated by oligopolies um, and also having a very weak public broadcasting system. And 
all this taken together, uh, I found, you know, you need to go back to the 1940s to really begin to make sense of how this came about, looking at policy battles, looking at the shifting common sense at the time, especially the anti-communist hysteria that really took root in the in the U.S. during the post-war years. So this um, led me more to contemporary. In fact, I, my concerns were always very contemporary, but I always believe that you must historicize all these problems. And then I began focusing more on the future, again, of journalism, future of digital media. I've written things on um, the very wonky sounding net neutrality, for example, um, and other Internet policy debates. Uh, but, it, but much of my work continues to focus on the wicked problem of, you know, replacing the commercial media model, this journalism crisis that's been, you know, ongoing for, for, for almost decades now. Again, sort of opening up just analytically, also opening up a window for really seeing clearly how capitalism and journalism have always been at odds, how our democratic imperatives are incompatible with capitalist imperatives and so forth. So this is kind of where my work is going. A friend of mine, uh, actually a mutual friend of ours, Craig Robertson, quipped that this was a late stage Picard. Uh, I, I really hope it's not late stage. Sounds like something out of but, Star Trek, right? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's getting pretty sci-fi. Um, but, you know, well, this is where I'm heading these days. But that just in, in a nutshell, I think, gives you a sense of my trajectory. The one last thing I'll note is that in really from the beginning, but incre increasing in recent years is my focus on public writing. So um, I'm still maintaining, a, you know, an academic portfolio, but uh, increasingly much of my work uh, I publish in places like The Nation or Jacobin or uh, on, on, on Twitter or X, uh, less so these days, but that certainly has been one of my outlets. So that's where, you know, I'm all, I've always hoped to engage communities outside of the seminar room. And, uh, and of course, I've been very active with the media reform organization, Free Press, which we've sort of been, you know, hinting at throughout this conversation. They've been involved in these media reform battles since the early 2000s. I'm now the chair of their board. So I'm involved in their ongoing conversations around these issues. So I want to come back to Free Press in a moment. Before I do, I want you to be a little less immodest, a little, sorry, a little less modest. Um, because you've mentioned some of the things you've worked on, you've published on, but you haven't actually told us where people might find this stuff in which journals, which books, etc. I wonder if you might be prepared just to mention, say, a few of those. Sure, absolutely. And I guess I could start out by saying that uh, my name, Victor Picard, is not that common. So uh, if you <laughs> Google me, you'll find that I'm, I've been very online. I'm very easy to find. Um, my writings are, I post them up wherever I can. Um, but I, so I've written or edited a, a, a number of books. And most recently, um, I mentioned, you know, I did work on net neutrality. I co-authored a book with David Berman in 2019 called After Net Neutrality, which is really a history and political economy of the net neutrality debate, but making the argument that, again, um, these are symptomatic problems. Net neutrality is not the core root of the problem. Um, and we talk about a new deal for the digital age. So it's also part manifesto, you might say. Um, and then another recent book is Democracy Without Journalism that came out just over uh, three years ago with Oxford. It's 
Um, and that's fo- that covers a lot of the things I've been ranting about um, in this conversation. Uh, but yeah, I, and I get, as I noted, I, I write a lot for Jacobin and the Nation. It's probably my two main public uh, outlets. But I've written things um, also for the Progressive Magazine. I had an article that came out less than a year ago that really tried to make sense of this news deserts problem here in the United States. So those are a few places. I think I'm great. Thank you. You're still being very modest. Never mind. As you say, as a consequence of your name, you're not hard to find. In my case, Toby Miller is the name of a, I think now retired uh, California porn actor. (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah, and a snowboarding grommet who's very famous was very famous, but who broke up with his girlfriend and appears to have never come down from the slopes or made it back up to the slopes since. <laughs> so, so you're in good company, it sounds like. <laughs> exactly. Media reform and specifically free press. Could you tell people, because a lot of people who will be listening to this won't be from the United States. And for one thing, we might have to tell them a little bit about the fact that cable TV and Fox News is not watched by 300 million Americans every night. It's watched by such tiny numbers that if it were a broadcast network, everyone would be fired tomorrow. But apart from that, they may not know about the free press. So could you tell us about its trajectory, what it was doing over the last decades and what you're concerned with now as chair of its board? Sure. Yeah. And I, you know, preface it by saying I don't speak for free press, of course. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure we, we have some, perhaps some differences in, in, in terms of strategy and, and, and even ideology at times, but, um, it to really historicize free press, we need to go back to this moment that we referred to earlier, which is in the early two thousands in the run up to the Iraq war and the growing media criticism and there always had been, even predating free press, there was vibrant activism, sometimes referred to as the media democracy movement, the media justice movement. But many of these activist groups and social movements came to this similar conclusion that I came to um, before I came back to graduate school, which is regardless of what your first issue is, your second issue needs to be media reform because you're not going to get very far on your first issue with a, with a hostile media environment, especially the one that we have in the United States. So free press really emerged from these social movement currents and took root in a media critique that was most aligned with Robert McChesney, who was one of the uh, original co-founders of free press. He was my uh, advisor uh, in, in grad school. And uh, he was deeply involved in free press for, the number, for a number of years. He's now uh, no longer on, on the board, still, still a fan. Um, but that really gives you a sense of where their kind of intellectual and ideological roots are found, which is in this political, critical political economic tradition that really at that time identified monopoly power as a kind of core, core problem that we needed to confront and basically uh, break up the media conglomerates was one of the major challenges of, of those days. And I think what we've seen evolve and the strategies have evolved, uh, both in response to political shifting political landscapes. So, for example, um, during the George Bush administration, it was a very much you know grassroots adversarial movement. I think during the Obama administration, it moved a bit more inside the beltway um, really trying to focus on uh, policymakers, never losing touch with its grassroots 
Um, but certainly there was more emphasis on that, on the policy apparatus in D.C. for a number of years. Since then, they've moved back out, uh, out of the belt, beltway more and more uh, into, the, into the grassroots, but also focusing on things like racial justice, focusing on things like surveillance capitalism. And again, this question about the collapse of local journalism has become a more dominant concern. And that's one that I've been very involved with in, in working with them on, um, but also looking at the platforms and social media and what we can do to try to create um, a better system and just putting pressure, you know, wherever we can. Unfortunately, it's been too much of a kind of reactive, uh, you know, crouch for for a number of years. But I do think we're beginning to articulate more these ambitious plans, these, you know, what's what's our political imaginary for the future and that's what I've been pushing them on is to think, let's have a 10 year plan, a 20 year plan. You know, the, 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 the right has been very successful in, in shifting common sense in their direction. And I think the left needs to, I'm not, I wouldn't suggest just learning from the right, but just being more Gramscian and uh, thinking more long-term. For sure. So Victor, I have two more questions for you and then I'll conclude by asking you if there are things we haven't discussed that you'd like to add. So my first question relates to what you've just said, which is to this time it's not a cocktail party at Annenberg. It's Victor as, you know, an 18 or 19 year old in college or whatever you were doing. How did you at that stage or earlier or later get invested in the question of media reform? How did you become an activist? What were the problems that you were discerning? Sure. So certainly not an 18 or 19 year old Victor uh, was concerned with these issues. I was focused on on other very pressing concerns. But I would say for me, my political conscious consciousness around these issues really came to life um, right at not long after college. And I moved out of the country. I lived in Japan for three years. I traveled through uh, backpacking through Asia um, for uh, over a year. And I was reading a lot, uh, reading a lot of Saeed and Chomsky and, you know, basically becoming somewhat radicalized just through through reading, but also seeing firsthand the direct results of American foreign policy. And, and the one anecdote that I often come back to was traveling on through the, the plane, what's called the Plain of Jars in Laos, and just seeing all the craters from the excessive bombing um, during, you know, it's part of the secret war uh, during the, the Vietnam War, the U.S. just dropping tons and tons of bombs that are still exploding to this day. And the fact that this was not, I knew nothing of this, uh, that this was not being covered in our media. Uh, we were not taking responsibility for this. I was talking to Laotian farmers who were telling me that they and their livestock were being blown up on a weekly basis. This is something that our media should be covering constantly. Um, and that really sparked this early media critique that I brought back with me to the United States, became involved as an activist um, um, at that at that time. So that's, uh, you know, and that's when I got involved in indie media and, and, you know, in the run up to not just I guess it was the WTO protest at that point, global justice movement, but then soon uh, becoming an anti-war movement, which so many of those concerns, of course, are unfortunately so timely uh, for what we're facing today, especially with the situation in Gaza. And we speak only days after the death of Henry Kissinger, who was one of the architects of the right. barbarism. 
of that, what had started as, of course, a liberal war. It was, the um, anyway, a, a tragic, tragic moment. And thank you for that very compelling personal story, Victor. That is very moving. And I think in, it very important at the moment because perhaps for the first time, people maybe in the various obituaries written about Kissinger are learning about this. But I think they're more likely to be learning about his great achievements in inverted commas. Right. Or that he was a, he was a playboy and, you know, all these like charming stories about him. And they're not going to learn about Laos and Cambodia and Chile and East Timor. They're going to learn about opening up to China and about his being a playboy and about his being such a wonderful academic. So thank you for that. So my last question is to ask you about the state of journalism studies because it's still a pretty big deal in the United States. And in some ways, the United States model of credentialing people to become journalists in a formal way through J school has become more popular around the globe. What do you think of journalism studies? Is it something you bother to reference or look at or not? It's a great question. I mean, I think how journalism studies is defined is still uh, up for grabs somewhat. Um, it's a, at least in the U.S. Uh, and if, for example, if you were to go to ICA, or one of our, you know, our big annual conference, it's become one of the largest divisions. Um, I went to a business meeting there at the last conference and I was expecting one of these small, you know, maybe 20, 30 people. And there were hundreds uh, of people in this huge ballroom. So um, there's a lot of energy there. Um, and I feel that personally in my own work, I straddle a number of subfields. So I wouldn't um, describe myself necessarily as a journalism studies scholar, but I'm certainly engaged with it. I do cite their work. I think a lot of good work is coming out of there. There is an emphasis on, or at least until recently, this might be changing. There was often an emphasis on the kind of cultural routines of news gathering and journalistic practices also the effects of new technologies on journalism. So there is this irony that journalism studies is rapidly expanding at the precise moment that journalism itself is collapsing. Um, not just, you know, so much of my focus is on the U.S., but this is a phenomenon that's occurring around the world. We should be clear that uh, many, if not most countries, are suffering their own kinds of journalism crises um, at this moment. So I don't... so. I guess I've, I tend to be cautiously optimistic. So I do think that uh, journalism studies has a lot of potential to further engage with some of these issues. I personally would like to see more structural criticism, more political economic criticism, more just critical work in general um, come out of that tradition. But I do think there's signs that it's moving in that direction. Well, thank you very much, Victor. I wanted now to leave the last word, as it were, with you. We've covered a fair bit of terrain, but not everything. Is there anything you'd like to add? You know, we've covered so much and I don't I don't have anything specific, except I will go back to one piece of our earlier conversation, which is, you know, should we care about journalism? Do people, especially young people, care about journalism? What's what could we do to make it different? And I, I again would point to some research that's emerging. I think there's a growing body of work that shows that when people, when communities are directly engaged with 
the, with local news institutions. There are higher levels of trust. Um, and I think that's a way also to engage younger people. If they, so again, to go back to my utopian plan of a public media center, if the communities themselves are directly engaged, whether, you know, again, they are the journalists themselves, at the very least, there's constant dialogue. Um, the newsrooms look like the communities that they serve. Going back to this kind of cultural um, element that's often lost and just building solidarity, uh, I think that's something we really need to to focus on. And that increasingly is where my own work is going. And I think one of the important points to make for people who've never lived in the United States, and it's thought of as nothing but a bastion of reactionary politics, there are millions and millions and millions of really left-wing U.S. citizens and always have been, despite decades of oppression, despite everything that went on in the you know, early years of the 20th century, uh, despite the National Guard, despite union busting, despite the ideological tenor of everything from the far right to the center right, which is the best you get in the print daily media in the United States. There are so many people who are prepared to give their time up in an incredibly dedicated way to the sorts of ideals and aspirations that you've listed. You're one of them. But all the people that are behind the scenes and in front of the scene, as it were, in movements like media reform, like indie media that was, are just part of literally thousands of third sector entities across the U.S. dedicated to progressive causes. And I, I just think that because inevitably we have to talk about the horrors of U.S. foreign policy as the second most destructive force in world history after Britain, we have to talk about the horrors of U.S. economic policy. We have to talk about the horrors of slavery and racism and patriarchy, which are incarnate in most major countries, but especially in U.S. history. We have to talk about the fact that the Civil War never ended. Uh, those things are all true, but they're true in part because there are people constantly resisting the terms of trade set up by the right, and they are not few in number. And I, I really think that you've made that point indirectly, but it's something that I always want to emphasize to folks who look at the horror of the United States and not the other side, because it's real and it's there and it's a lengthy progressive tradition. Now you're nodding. Is that because you're thinking he's on his third glass of wine, he still hasn't got to the cheese? No, I'm thinking we need another round. Uh, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, Toby. And you know, there's, there's so much to point to. There's the Occupy movement. There's Black Lives Matter. There are all these social movements that are always emerging or bubbling just beneath the the surface. And I always re remind my international friends that you know we came fairly close to electing a democratic socialist um, for president, and that's. If you had told me that 10 years ago, I would have thought we had had far, far too much wine and maybe too much whiskey at that point. But it's 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 true. It, it happened. It, this can happen again. The future is not foreordained. Um, it's not inevitable that we are this neoliberal empire. And uh, I remain optimistic that a progressive future is is within grasp. Well, Victor, on that note, best we conclude, but best that I also seek to extract a promise and a premise 
from you that you will return to the pod and we can talk more about these positive things and their long history and their powerful present. I would love to, Toby. Anytime. Thanks so much for having me.